Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 51 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. Daddy Joystick. And I'm joined here by my nefarious co-host, former market maker, 20 years and current day retail trader. I'm talking about how Street's own Alan Iverson for the amount of traders that he's turned inside out. I am talking about the man who always speaks at a soothing decibel level. My co-host, DJ Magic VWAP. JJ, how's it going? Hey, brother. Good, brother. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Doing great. And now our guest today is a recognized industry expert in futures and hedge funds and the author of a number of widely acclaimed financial books. He is perhaps best known for his best-selling series of interviews with the greatest traders and hedge funds managers of the last three decades. His prior experience includes 22 years as director of futures research for some of Wall Street's leading firms and a partner in the Fortune Group. Of course, I am talking about the market wizard himself, Jack Schwager. Jack, how's it going? Oh, good. Thanks. Although I don't consider myself a market wizard, so I should... I just write about them. I'm not, yeah. I don't claim to be one. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious myself about your trading background, and I'm sure just having access and talking to all these different people, I'm sure you've picked up so much things yourself. Uh, what has been the impact of it, you know interviewing these traders on your own trading? Yeah, well, obviously positive. Um, it was actually the motivation for the first. Market Wizard book with, mm-hmm. I thought it was a good way to kind of learn stuff and become a better trader. Although I was never, <clears throat> I was never a trader for all time. It was always something on the side, you can, sort of more like a hobby or whatever. Uh, yeah, so while I was working full time, you know, I might put on some trades. Uh, there are times where I trade, there are times where I don't trade. So it's never been like full time. But when I did trade or wanted to trade, I wanted to be better, <laughs> which wasn't a very high bar because I started off as an awful trader and I still am not a great trader, but uh, at least, you know, uh, via interviewing a lot of people who knew what they were doing and were willing to talk about it, at least that was a transformation from being net negative to net positive, which is an important line to cross. So, uh, you know, uh, that's, so I learned a lot of different things from, from the traders I interviewed definitely influenced me, uh, you know, as a trader. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm definitely influenced as, as I hope many readers are, but uh, yeah. For sure. Well, you know, it seems a, you know, common theme that most of the traders didn't start off as good traders. And that's probably, you know, it's something me and JJ talk about that a lot of people who have success right away, it might actually be a detriment to their trading because a lot of times it's attributed to luck. And, you know, not necessarily skill and the process that you, you know, you and the, so many of the traders talk about uh, in your books. So, so, you know, it's a real honor to have you on, uh, Jack. Last week, you, you hosted a segment um, for Chips for Charity, which was, you know, poker tournament. It was a real fun event. I had a pleasure of uh, being a part of it as well. Um, big shout out to Troy Prince, two-time podcast guest, good friend of ours. Uh, how'd, you, how'd you get uh, hooked up with those guys? How'd you? Um... Uh, I forget, you know, uh, basically they asked me to participate. I forget who, um, you know, who did, but, you know, I obviously agreed. So um, I, I like, I, 
done a number of webinars recently, so sort of hard to keep some of them straight, but uh, certainly as a charity event, I was more than willing to do it. Yeah, yeah, and it, for, for a great cause, it's um, Wall Street bound for the listeners. We had them on two times. Big shout out to Troy Prince, and just a reminder to the listeners, if you guys like to trade alongside JJ, myself, in a supportive community of traders, we trade futures, equities, and options at microefutures.com. Uh, Jack, just, just a little curious, you know, a little bit more about your trading history, how you came to love financial markets um, and your participation in them. So unlike, unlike a lot of other people who end up being traders, I, I didn't have any ambition or thought of being a trader or for that matter, even being involved in financial markets. I, I really fell into it by, by pure luck. I was out of graduate school with an economics degree. I was looking for an economics for a uh, analytical job. And it so happened that the first job I ended up in was a, an analyst position for futures research department. And uh, that once you're working as an analyst in the markets, it's sort of a natural step. If your job is trying to tell people how to trade or what to trade or whatever, it's kind of natural that you want to try to trade yourself. And uh, so that, that was the that's how I ended up starting to trade. Of course, in the beginning, I knew nothing about trading and having an economics degree was of zero benefit. Um, if anything, it might've been detrimental and making me somewhat skeptical of technical side and you know, almost without thinking about it, the only approach I would consider would be fundamental because that's more attuned to a, an economics type background. So um, anyway, that's how I fell into it. It was just by, by luck. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think um, we, we had a, a former analyst, Walter Diemer, on for he's an analyst for over 50 years. And that was something he was talking about, that how the, the skill set of being an analyst and a trader is like totally different and that he couldn't trade himself, even though he was, you know, a really well-renowned analyst himself. So I, I always think on that. I find that interesting. Um, so so, Jack, just uh, quick thoughts um, on the resi- the resiliency of the market. That we've seen this year? I, I oh, yeah. well, um, I, I was completely caught off guard because, you know, when we had the initial break, what I, my response was to scale down orders, um, you know, pretty deep down, but based on retracement levels. And we never got to the top of the scale. Not, didn't miss the top by very much, but, uh, I never got down. And my thought was we'd, we'd get a bounce and we'd come down again. And I, I can't recall, you know, and I've looked at a lot of markets over the decades and I'm not just talking about stocks, but you know, and I'm not talking about stock indexes alone, but any futures markets or whatever, or you know, interest rate markets, whatever. I can't recall a, a situation where um, we had like one giant decline and then just a giant rebound back to new highs without, you know, just like a V. Now you get V bottoms, but they're not just V bottoms. You know, you'll, you'll get the rebound, you'll come back, you know, the bottom itself may be V, but for the entire move down and up to be a V uh, is pretty, you know, I, you know, I wasn't expecting it. Uh, I was totally surprised. In fact, initially I didn't get the buy side. I had scale up sell orders, which I eventually pulled because the market action just wasn't right for it. Um, but I to- totally missed it. Now we're new eyes. 
Short term, the market still looks bullish. I don't know. You know, I, I'm not a predictor, uh, and uh, my prediction is what would happen on a rebound was certainly wrong because I would have thought, well, you got a rebound 50%, maybe 60%, then you'd, you'd have another second test. Never happened. Yeah, right, right. De- definitely unique situation we got, JJ. Something you've never experienced either, right? Well, in, in 30 years, I've never seen anybody. Well, I did some research and, and, we actually, in, in April, uh, after we looked at the 13 Fs, we saw that the large time frame, longer time frame shareholders didn't sell any positions. So we knew that there was no supply. So I said, let's not short. Um, this thing's going to go right back up because I'm an ex-manipulator. And I used to manipulate, um, you know, under $20 NASDAQ so you could sell a large position. And when there's no supply, we just couldn't short. So we looked at the 13 Fs and I've never seen such large concentrations of positions in money management funds that are longer time frame that aren't selling. Um, you know, you've got, you know, people with a billion shares of Apple and it's not coming out, nor is there a liquid enough market to get it out if you had to. So it's, <laughs> we've gotten them so long that we can't sell. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, and it, it makes me think of something that that Jack you you wrote in the book that the the unknown wizards, you know, in the new book, they've had some of the greatest results that you've seen despite professional managers accounting for an ever increasing amount, uh, you know, of the percent of all of trading. How how can that be? Yeah, well, as you say, I was totally surprised. I didn't didn't expect it from the first market wizards book till now. We've seen just a, an enormous shift, or you know, of professional managers, namely hedge funds and mostly hedge funds, but you know others, uh, counting for a larger and larger piece of the trading pool. So, you know, it's like when you had a few professional traders, like in the first Marcus Wiss's book, uh, Michael Marcus describes it. He said, you know, he would get long, and then like a week later, the densest of the world would get long, and he. <laughs> He had a big profit and he get out. I mean, that's no longer, the dentists of the world no longer have a large percentage of the trading pool. Yeah. Uh, so, but, you know, so I would not, I would have expected to be more difficult, if not impossible, to get sort of spectacular types of returns for a decade or longer. Uh, but, you know, these people did, uh, at least most of them. And um, it, <laughs> You know, like I say, it's, I don't have an explanation, just that they found a niche and they were extremely good. And they, they, they had the skills uh, to be, you know, some people I think are just born traders. Mm-hmm. And it just demonstrates that despite, despite the shift to so many more professional traders, it's still possible for the independent guy trading <laughs> from his home office or whatever to still do extremely well. Of course, we're talking about a small percentage, but the possibility is still there. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's very encouraging, um, you know, for people like myself, I'm sure for the listeners as well. Do you think, you know, because where my mind goes, you know, and I'm not sure, but the only theory I can think of, do you think maybe, Jack, there's a having, having a smaller account, there's some maneuverability and some advantages and maybe not having, you know, cause some of these guys, they have such large, you know, they're yeah. dealing with such large money. So that I think that maybe there's some advantages to having a smaller account. Yeah. That's always been true. It's always been, you know, I always thought that 
being a smaller trader is an advantage over being a big trader. A lot of people think it's the other way around. Well, you're a big trader, you get you know some, you, you get a bit more information, you get better. But bottom line, the the ability to get into the market and out of the and out of the market, with you know no as a nobody, you know because you're too small to make a difference, is a big deal. Is a big deal. So uh, yeah, I mean I think that's an advantage small traders have. They've always had it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that's great. That's great. That's something we, we need to embrace. Um, so, Jack, so taking it back to the first book, which I believe was in 89, correct? Yeah. I so wrote how, it in came out in 89. 89. So, so where, where did this idea uh, come from to, to, you know, to create the series? Well, you know, most people think <clears throat> Market Wizards is my, my first book. It wasn't. I wrote a, uh, an analytical book, uh, sort of a reference work. Uh, back about five years earlier called The Complete Guide to the Futures Markets, which got revised in a couple of years ago. Uh, but that book, sort of, I took a sabbatical to write that book, and that was pre-PC. It was really an enormous amount of work. Uh, so I did that just, I did that to put down a marker. As, and I thought I could write a better book. Uh, you know, when I came into the industry, I didn't, I didn't think there were any really good books on analysis of the futures markets. And, you know, even when I wrote that book, I still didn't think there were any really good books. And I thought I, I could do better than anything that's out there. So I just wanted to do it. Not that I, you know, if you, it's not to make money because you don't write a book like that to make money. You write a book like that to just put, you know, to establish that, hey, you know, uh, yourself as, as somebody, you know, who's got something to say that's worthwhile. And um, that book was successful for what it was. And I got approached to do other books by another publisher which again, we want, they want me to do a whole bunch of, to be an editor in chief for a number of analytical books. I said, hey, I've been there, done that, not what I want to do. Uh, but I, I'd like to do something more of like a, uh, more of a broad audience book. And I had this concept as like we talked market wizards, go around the country, talk to the best traders and, and find out how, what do they do that the rest of us don't and try to pick their brains. And I thought that would be A, useful for myself be a fun project and see probably a good idea for a book. So they said, yeah, that's great. Why don't you do that? And so that was a catalyst. I had the idea for several years, but I was a director of futures research, which is more than a full-time job. And I wasn't eager to try to do a book on top of that. But once I had to kind of say, oh, somebody give me the spur. Okay, do it. You know, that, so it became a nights and weekend type of project. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So, so Jack, so other than the, you know, technical or the technological improvements to trading, what's been the biggest contrast in the markets from the first market wizard to the latest? Well, there's been a lot of them. Uh, for once, you know, uh, back when I started, you know, for decades after we were dealing with markets with pits, you know, for one thing, mm-hmm. as opposed to electronic trading. And uh, in fact, the first exchange that tried, somebody was early, I forgot the name of some, they were on some island or whatever, they tried electronic trading, which I thought was a really good idea, but it, I forget why it didn't work initially. But about 10 years later, it, it, you know, it got tried again and that became a force. It became all of trading virtually. Uh, so that's one big difference. Uh, the, 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 the technological thing is, is really immense, is immense because you had a whole bunch of approaches which were impossible to do. A lot of hedge fund strategies were not possible to do pre, 
pre-computer. And a lot of hedge fund strategy were not possible to do pre-supercomputer power, like, you know. Uh, so, uh, so this definitely widened the amount of things that are being done in the markets. And it's also, also we have a, a, a tremendous increase in amounts of quantitative people in the markets. You know, back, back in the late 80s, yeah, you had some quantitative people. And you had somebody like Thorpe, who I, uh, who I interviewed in Hedge Fund Market Wizards, which was the previous uh, Market Wizards book, who was probably the first, really the first quant, may well have been the first real quant, because um, he started, I think, in the 60s, late 60s. So you did have people like him, but they were just like, <laughs> often like me, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, the real emergence of these huge, you know, <laughs> multi-billion dollar quant shop, tens of billions of dollars on the bench with hundreds of quants working for them. That's a whole different world. And that didn't exist at all, at all, couldn't exist because as I said, you didn't have the computer power. So it's a combination of the computer power and the, uh, and the people and highly quantitative people coming into the industry. Uh, which is also a difference, you know, big, big difference. For sure. For sure. For, for, out of all, like all the traders that you've interviewed over the years, how many traders would you say are kind of like they're field traders there? They trade off uh, the intuition. It, I would imagine that's like a rare uh, combination. And do you think people can succeed that they uh, succeed, you know, currently trading like that? Well, it's not, you know, intuition is part of it, but if you want to make it a little broader, uh, using the word discretionary traders as opposed to, you know, into it, because discretionary traders may have very specific methodologies. They're not programmed. Uh, They may have basic concepts and they have some intuition probably mixed in there. Sometimes very, it's a very heavy dose of intuition, but most times it's just a discretionary methodology. And I think it's a better category to talk about. Uh, and I would say that the majority, probably a good majority of the people that I interviewed were discretionary traders as opposed to systematic traders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because it's very difficult, with the exception of firms like Renaissance, you know, which are, which are kind of unusual to get sort of spectacular performance on a, on, on a quant approach. There are some of those firms, okay? But that's really a little bit different than when we think of systematic trading. It's not, it's not one or a couple of people using a system they developed. We're now talking about firms which, like I said, may have 100 plus quant people devising systems which run together. They may have scores of systems running simultaneously, trading 10,000 plus securities across the range. You know, the underlying securities of derivatives of all types and cross relationships and they're looking to pick up, you know, slight inefficiencies in relationships of different markets. And so these are highly complex things that really take huge teams and huge computer power to, to make possible. Uh, and that's not the type of thing when people talk about systematic trading. So excluding that type of exception, it's difficult to find systematic traders who have extraordinary performance. Yeah, you can find plenty of systematic traders who have good performance and earn a living you know, maybe for all the life trading, but you're not going to get Sortino ratios of, you know, 10 plus, you know, on systematic trading, mm-hmm. with the exception I noted. 
Uh, you're not going to get you're not going to get somebody turning. Well, I mean, this book is an extreme example. As, as you know, one one traders turned twenty five hundred to fifty million. Last time I spoke to him, it was up to eighty million. It was fifty million when I when I wrote the book. You're not going to get that on any type of systematic trading. Just impossible. So that mm-hmm. takes like an extraordinary trader, like earning hundreds of percent to hear sometimes. Uh, and that's, you're not going to get that on the system. Yeah. That, that trader you mentioned, I, I forget his name, but he, he was the, the trader you were a little reluctant to, to include in the book at first, correct? Well, I, it wasn't, I was a rookie. He, he, he actually contacted me. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy who's, I mean, truly unknown, low profile, nobody just trading from his own home. Uh, has been doing it from, uh, I think, about 2005, the last 15 years or so. And he just sent me this email saying, you know, you may not believe this, but I, you know, I turned a $2,500 account into $50 million, um, or whatever it was. Maybe it was a little less. I think it was about $50 million at the time. So um, I said, I'm not, I'm not doing, uh, I, I, you know, first of all, you're skeptical. Right? But I said, not a problem because I would never include somebody who sends me an email like that unless I actually got the results. And, what I basically said, look, I'm not planning to do a book in a foreseeable future, but if things change, uh, that's an incredible story. And if you're uh, free to, if you're willing to share your statements, I'd be, you know, I'll let you know. So it turned out, I about six nine months later, I did decide to do this unknown Mark Ruiz's book, and I contacted him. I said, you know, okay, I'm doing another book. I am doing a book. I think you'd be great, uh, but I need to see the statements. And he was very cooperative. He literally sent me all his statements uh, and, you know, it was for real, you know, so uh, so <laughs> it wasn't that I didn't want to include him. It's just that, you know, I, I wasn't ready to do a book then. And when I was, of course, I needed to see uh, see the evidence and he was always open about doing that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he had, he had a, a unique uh, approach at first, right, because he was trading. Uh, I believe he was he was trading penny stocks penny and then stocks. he was trading off the spread, correct? Well, that is very, very first approach. I mean, right, right. the very, very first thing he did uh, is he noticed he noticed that there were these stocks which just were, he, first of all, he, he came in with this ridiculous objective of making a million dollars in his first year. Mm-hmm. And he figured out how much he had to compound daily to get the million dollars. And, and this is crazy. I don't tell, I don't advise anybody to think like this, but <laughs> sure, I mean, it worked for him, but I think he's one in a hundred million. Right. And um, so that was his objective. So he's looking for stocks that moved a lot. He discovered, hey, the stocks that move a lot are penny stocks. And then he discovered there are these stocks that trade, you know, like at this range, like between seven cents and eight cents or whatever. And they just all year. And then we dug into it. He found out that they were, this is, they went to, they went to, uh, I think, decimal point, you know, decimal training, whatever. But there were some, there were some, brokerages which only allowed you to trade round cents and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. or to the 10 for whatever. So he found, but there were brokerages that you could only trade seven or eight. So it was always bid seven off at eight. And so he was, he had a, his broker, you could put in fractions. So he, you know, initially <laughs> started out, initially he started out buying like at 701 and selling at 799, you know, that type of thing. And of course, as this thing became more known, that spread, you know, narrowed and narrowed. Narrow until it got to the point where it's no longer, you know, it became a matter of buying it at 750 and try selling it at 716. It was no longer, you know, the same strategy. But that's what he got started doing. And 
and that worked for him for a while. Yeah, yeah, it, it was definitely that was an interesting interview for sure. And you, certain parts of that interview, you know, I guess on the surface, some of the trades he made almost looked like uh, luck played a factor in some of in some of them. And what it makes me think on a broader sense is with a lot of these people, how much do you think, obviously all these guys are highly skilled for sure, but how much do you think luck plays into someone's success as a trader? Well, over the long term, I don't think it's it's an important element. Over the short term or any particular trade, it can be. And, uh, you know, I have a story, I have a number of stories. Actually, a, I can think of two, two things in the book, in that chapter, I'm sorry, uh, his chapter, which were definitely luck played a role. Uh, but, you know, it, he made something up to luck. So it's not, you know, it's not just the luck. It's the fact that you can, that you have what it takes to capitalize on the luck. So you know, I had one story where he bought the stock, which was, which was a heavy promo, promoted stock. And he first got in because he saw this huge amount of insider buying, like half the float or something got absorbed by insider buying, something crazy. And so he figured, so he got long. And that's why he didn't know anything. And yeah, and he, it was like, a, it was a stock called Sponge Tech. And when, and he always orders the product of any stock he buys. And the product was, it was a sponge, with, it was a sponge with soap in it. It wasn't exactly a high tech thing, but he liked the product. And anybody who started going up and the thing about sponge tech is they advertise in all these sports events. So, you know, if it was a tennis tournament, you'd see a sponge tech, you know, a sponge tech on the screen. Or, you know, uh, or it was a, you know, football thing, games. And so they got very popular. And he, he recounts how friends were asking about this, who knew nothing about stocks, just because they watched sports and they were seeing, you know, the, the thing advertised and it kept on going up. So it, he bought it like in a buck or two, I forget exactly where, something like that. And it went up to 10, went up to 15, went up to 20. Anyway, yeah. in the summers, he, he found, he takes off a few months in the summer because he finds, the summers are not a really good time to trade stocks. He only trades long. So he found it useful. First of all, he wants it, he likes to travel and he's been in like in God knows how many countries, but he takes the summers off. And uh, so he's in, he's on safari in the middle of Africa. He doesn't have any communication. He can't enter any orders. Um, all he has is his Blackberry. And the thing about Blackberries uh, uh, is that you can't communicate with the outside. You know, you can, when there's no communication, you can, Still communicate with, with other BlackBerry users. Exactly. Uh, pin message. I'm not a BlackBerry user, I don't, but that's what he told me. It's called a pin message. Okay. So, so he's in the middle of nowhere, and then one of these friends who went long, you know, on his advice, you know, contacts him, and and he said, you know, for message saying, SpongeTech is, you know, 25, and this is like crazy. So the instant he sees this, he he can can't put an order in. There's no way to, he goes to the front office. He somehow manages to get patched in, you know, you know, however he does it, to a point where he can put in an order, uh, and he gets out of all of the sponge tech. He goes back to his tent, and ten minutes later, he gets a message from his friend saying, "You know what? Sponge tech is down to five dollars. What do I do?" <laughs> I literally went in one day, and I went back to look at it, and you can see this one day. It's like up in the high twenties. And then goes all the way back down to like five bucks or something. Yeah. And, um, and so yeah, so it was lucky that he got he got that message for sure. But he but he acted on it instantaneously, even seriously. though it was very difficult. So it's like a perfect example of where there's luck, but he 
he capitalized on the luck. He had the instinct to know exactly what to do. You know, you know, and if he had hesitated, if he had hesitated or thought about it or said, I'll figure it out tomorrow, it would have been over. It's funny you mentioned that deal. I ran the distribution on it. Huh. <laughs> we did $125 million of dollar volume in one day. We liquidated $70 million worth of stock into retail buying. It was a good day. That's, that's, that's funny. Yeah. JJ, you, you like this. I, <laughs> I remember, I remember the story, Jack, cause he, he went back to the hotel and he, he bribed the front desk lady to like, let him use yeah. the computer. Yeah. 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 It was like, you know, yeah. Something of that it, nature. Yeah. Yeah. It was like yeah, a front yeah. office. It, it wasn't the people, it wasn't a hotel. We had phones and stuff. It was, I think probably one of these situations we get these, you know, maybe luxury tents or whatever, yeah. but you didn't have communication, you didn't have phones. Yeah, so you had I was, to go I was a consultant on that deal. That's, that's a small no one. Were you? Yeah. He would be. They paid, they paid me very nicely. <laughs> oh, so I mean, do you have more to add to that, to that story? Well, no, it was just a complete scam. And honestly, I thought when I did my due diligence, because all I did was I, I, I run markets. So if you have 300 million shares of some garbage stock to dispose of, I'll help you run the market so you can get rid of that into liquidity. I help right. create liquidity. That's what I've done for my whole life. And uh, these guys needed a favor. So I helped them engineer a bit of a short squeeze and do some work with DTC. So you could, you know, demand delivery back in those days. And um, it, it got really, and the thing was the guy who brought me the deal said, you know, they're doing all this advertising. It's a legitimate company. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, okay, it's a sponge with soap in it. That's fine. But they're going to give me a million shares to just work on the deal. So why not? Right. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's just funny because I remember that's when it was funny. Yeah, that's, a, that's amazing that you were. Because I was getting nervous when we started breaking 15 bucks. I was like, uh, you guys, you guys want to put out some paper because uh, this is the, you know, the FBI is going to be coming to the door here. Um, somebody sell some stock. Yeah. And literally they, the guy who held a convertible debenture or whatever it was, he got locked up at the brokerage house and they wouldn't let him sell. That's why the price jumped because, and when we were like, somebody sell somebody, you, I don't have any, we don't have any, nobody had any stock to sell because the buying was so much that it actually took us out of all our position, which wow. it's a beautiful thing when that happens. But yeah. And actually, uh, the thing that there was a scam. They they not only not only was it a scam, but it turns out that they they also stiffed the avi, the you know uh, you know the uh, sports. Oh, thing. that guy! He took everybody. He yeah. took everybody to the jail. He took everybody to the cleaners. I think he ended up in Club Fed. Yeah. But, and that was an amazing uh, thing because I always thought like penny stocks when when I learned that that's how he made you know. And he still trades. He still likes. He still likes uh, you know uh, really micro cap stocks. Uh, of course now. He has a lot more money, so it's a little more difficult. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I always had the impression that this was just like, you know, this, you know, it's a, it's, it's a way people, you know, naive people lose money. And, oh, I, I yeah. know. and so the, it's amazing that he was able to actually, uh, you know, profit tremendously. Not that he had any, he was never, he never had any inside information or, gosh. you know, uh, or involvement in these things, but just took advantage of it. And, uh, I, I just got to say, I never, ever thought in my wildest dreams that I'd be talking to one of the heroes of my trading life and talking about sponge tech, SPM. <laughs> life, is the, life is just amazing. Well, that it was a hell of a story. Amazing, right? Because every time I do these deals, I'd, re I'd remember your book and I'd go, oh, Jack Schweiger would not be proud of me. I'm not. <laughs> oh, 
it made it made it in one of the books. That's funny. Well, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, Jack, that that's really kind of the premise behind starting this podcast was, you know, JJ kind of shedding light on some of these things because, you know, like you're saying, there might be very few people, very small percent who can actually make money trading these type of things. Otherwise, like you said, these things are set up for people like JJ to fleece retail money. Um, and so this that's how this even kind of started with just JJ kind of <laughs> letting this be known because there's a lot of people who preach uh, trading these things. And, you know, it's tough. I'm looking for redemption, yes. Yeah, and he's looking for redemption <laughs> for his old ways. But, you know, Jack, one of the probably my favorite interview of the book and favorite trader was Jason uh, Shapiro. And um, I know you wrote he was hesitant um, and even declined at first to be a part of the book. So I'm glad you got him and you yeah. locked him down. His, you know, I, I guess what I really liked about him is his uh, contrarian approach uh, is one, I guess, that kind of appeals to my gambling background as well. And I loved how he used that analogy with the football spread and when one people's when, when people are on all one team. Right. Um, and so, yeah, can you just speak to his uh, his contrarian approach? Um and what you think about it? Yeah, so I mean, it works. For, well, Jason's a very contrary. I mean, it fits. First of all, he's a perfect example. I always tell people in every book, I probably have the message is find an approach that works for you. Yeah, uh, yeah fits your personality. And he's kind of a poster child for that because, I mean, he's just inherently contrary. <laughs> he always wants to be on the other side. He always wants to, yeah. you know, he'll readily tell you that if he goes to a party and, and it's mostly liberals, he'll, he'll argue the conservative side. And if it's mostly conservatives, <laughs> he'll argue the liberal side. And he'll do either one, it doesn't make a difference, you know? Yeah. And his point is, nothing is absolutely black and white. There's always something on the opposite side that's right. Mm -hmm. And he just likes being on the opposite side. And his, his basic premise is that if, if everybody is sort of convinced of one side of the market, then, you know, there's just not gonna be, you know, the money's gonna be on the other side of the market. Right. And so he tries to identify it. He uses, he uses the CFTC as a base of, for data. He uses the CFTC uh, commitment to traders reports, and but that that itself is not is not sufficient, obviously, because you can be overbought or oversold for long times in markets, <laughs> and you know you can go broke that way. But it's a matter of using notice to identify markets where he's looking for a trade in the opposite direction, and then he then he if he, if he sees, for example, if he thinks a market. Is, is overbought and it's ready to you know sell off. And let's say he's you know looking at news, whatever. Let's say some news item comes out and the market doesn't doesn't go up, and maybe it goes maybe it closes weak. He'll look for something like that. He'll look for something in a market action which tells him, okay, here's a signal that the market is you know this could be the top or it could be. So he's literally trying to get the tops and the bottoms. And he always uh, he always has a whenever he puts on a trade, he always has his exit point determined and he will he said he's he said he will never ever ever uh you know touch that stop so uh that's the way he can pick tops and bottoms because if he's wrong he'll get knocked out pretty quickly uh so he won't stay you know he won't stay with a trend that's going against him and his early career first 10 years or so he had made a small yeah he made like a million dollars a couple of times and then blew it all because he didn't have that risk management. He was always contrarian. But, so you get a market like the NASDAQ uh, in the 1990s, late 1990s. So he's looking at it and he thinks it's a, 
I said, this is a bubble, you know, this is crazy. Well, he was right, and so was Greenspan. And in fact, he mentions that day where Greenspan talked about irrational exuberance. And he thinks, yeah, yeah, Greenspan and me, the only guys who get it. Of course, that was about three years early. <laughs> and the difference between Jason then, that's he eventually went broke. Uh, in fact, the only thing he left, the second time he went broke, he bought a Porsche on the, you know, while from his profits. So when he lost all his money again, at least he had the, he had the car left over. Otherwise, he would have he would have nothing. Uh, but that, those experiences taught him what was wrong. It taught him that you know uh, you can't just trade you can't just trade like that without having the risk management. And uh, he would see then other people who would do what he did in those days, and he would almost use them as contrary indicators. Uh, he would spot those people, uh, you know, in his professional life, and he would identify them and. Boy, if this guy is if this guy's long, it's probably a good time to be short. Because he saw he saw in them, you know, the same types of mistakes he was making in his early years. Yeah. And I love it. It's such a it's such a unique approach. You know, me and JJ, I mean, we've often said, you know, talk to people about like, hey, don't listen to CNBC, don't, don't, you know, to these uh, broadcasting stations, but he would listen to them yeah. and use them as his contrarian indicator. It was yeah, funny, JJ. Yeah. There was one guy he knew. He kept track of the guy's record, and oh, okay. the guy was always wrong, and he so would just go off. opposite of the of the guy on CNBC. Nice. It would be one of the things he would he would you know, yeah. And then no, that's not the only thing he would do. He obviously he that just yeah. helps aid yeah. his process. Um, and I, I just I just thought it was a, a real you know unique way, and just picking out the people he knew were just bad. <laughs> just bad well, traders exactly uh, like on the desk there was always some guy who was always wrong so you always took the other side of his trade yeah right? it was just yeah. <laughs> because you do right in fact he talks about this the march bottom that we had this past year um and he talks about like there was conference call that from one of the firms he had worked at when he was managing money you know for within a hedge fund um one of the firms, you know, which he gave up because he just wanted to be on his own. Uh, but so number of these guys would have still was in touch and they would have occasionally have these conference calls. And that day where we had this one to the lows, uh, you know, where it was like huge panic and they had a conference call that night. And ironically, so this guy, he said, this guy was a perpetual bull. He was always bullish. And uh, on this conference call, he said something like, uh, you know, well, we haven't seen capitulation yet. This is not the bottom. That's all you had to hear. This guy was always a bull saying we haven't had capitulation yet. So he went long that night, not fully, but just not because that guy was saying it's not the bottom yet. And so he went long in that. And then the market had some action, which, which suggested it could be a bottom. Like it, it was more, you know, they had some negative news that ignored or whatever. And it rallied the next day. And then he went fully long. But he used that actually as an indicator. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And, and just his whole story in general and his re, uh, resiliency, like you said, the amount of times that he blew up. But he, you know, he had the conviction that like, no, like this is what I'm doing. He had like that unwavering determination, which I really respect. I really enjoyed his whole story. And then the last thing I want to I want to ask about him is, you know, because the real concept he wanted to get across to people in the book um, that he says, and I'm going to quote him, he says, the concept that market and market's discounting mechanism is based on speculator participation and not price is the most important thing that I know. Could you elaborate on what he meant by that? 
Well, you know, are you talking about, um, in that particular instance, uh, are you talking about the CFTC numbers, just the price itself? I'm sorry, say it again? Um, are you talking about his use of the CFTC numbers or the price itself? No, no, just the, the price itself. And I'll read it again, because this was, this was like his closing kind of like statement, um, if I'm remembering. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I think I know. Uh, yeah, let me just... Uh, I think I know exactly. Yeah, the most important thing that he uh, that he know that he learned from you know that he is the most important lesson that he could. In fact, it's like right at the end. Yeah, exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I uh, yeah. So if I have a message to the world, I'm going to quote this. Yeah. If I have any message to the world, and there's a reason I agreed to do this interview. Mm -hmm. uh, it is to convey the importance of participation. Everybody understands that the market is a discounting mechanism. What they don't realize is that the discounting mechanism is not price, it's participation. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's not how high the price is going, how low. It's to what degree, you know, are speculators, you know, committed, you know, versus, versus commercials, uh, which refers to the underlying commitment traders reports. Um, it's not that the price has gone from 50 to 100 and therefore uh, the bullish fundamentals are discounted. Instead is that everybody's long and consequently the bullish fundamentals are discounted. So it, it's, it, so, so people might think, oh, this market is going up so much. You know, it's gotta be a sell. People, he says, so it doesn't make sense how much is going up, how much is going down. It doesn't mean anything until you actually see that speculators are, overweighted to one side. So he said, so it's not that the price is discounting the market. Yeah, it's not that the price is going up or enough or down enough to discount the situation. It's that the participation of speculators has gone extreme enough to discount the situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's great. I, and you don't really hear. Uh, no, that's a totally original type of for, for sure. And it makes, and that's why Jack, I was saying like his, his, his style of thinking definitely correlates with the way I view the market. Like I always, like I try, and this is something I learned from, from JJ uh, right here is I try and be on the side of the sharp money. Not, you know, not the, you know, cause I'm a retail trader myself, you know, so I'm just trying to figure out what the sharps are doing and go with them. And that seems like his, you know, style, style of methodology um, as well as a trader. So I really enjoyed that one. JJ, I know I'm I'm hogging all the questions here. You guys, oh, you guys that's good. I'm just I'm 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 just chilling, waiting. I'm just, uh, you know, I I started out in this business in in 1993. I got interested because uh, I was a bouncer working at a nightclub, and somebody gave me liars poker one night. One of the traders from the VSC Vancouver Stock Exchange, and I tell you, it I was hooked. Michael Lewis is what got me in the business. But then I didn't know how the hell am I going to get be a trader and how's this all going to work? And then we, I found market wizards and from about 93 till about 97. And even after there was a group of us all trying to get into the industry and trying to get on trade desks and we carried market wizards around like a Bible. We were like, there was like a Jack Schwager cult. And we would, we would be quoting your book all the time and making jokes up around, you know, certain stories, you know, like the legend of the Jade Master, right? Yeah, you know, like, you, you, you know, you'd be at a party and somebody would say something stupid and you'd go, mm, 
Tape <laughs> Master wouldn't approve, right? <clears throat> and uh, just, you know, it was like a cult. You know, so I never thought I'd get to interview you, number one. Number two, uh, your interview with Linda Ratchke is how I got a job because I was like, how the hell am I going to get a job? Because it's kind of closed. Everybody's got their kid on the trade desk. Uh, all the deal makers have family, uh, you know, representing their accounts. And she's, you know, she said she got a job at Crown Zellerback, which was close to the exchange so she could network. So I put on a suit and went and got a government job so I could <laughs> network and meet people there. And uh, that's because of you and, and uh, that interview. And the other thing that I'm, I'm just um, so grateful because that book gave us hope, right? Not only did it teach us about the business and how these people think, but it gave uh, someone who was 20, 22, you know, it gave them that hope that it could be done. And that was huge. And now even with the second book, I see that you're doing it with retail, you're inspiring and giving those people hope because when you take the curtain away and you show people what's behind the curtain, it actually makes those things at least seem achievable, right? And I really want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's that's been my takeaway from it too. Like when we were talking about earlier in the podcast, that the type of returns these guys were able to get managing their own money, it, yeah, you know, is astounding, and that's that's inspiring. You know, it, it really is. And Jack, I want to ask you because because you have in the book, um, you have futures traders, then you have the equities traders, right. the stock traders. Is is trading just trading, or is there some fundamental differences between the two traders? No, really, there is, you know, I just divide them. I've been doing that in every market which is about dividing them by uh, types of traders. So, you know, typically equity versus futures. And, uh, you know, in some books, there's even, you know, it's more, fun, you know, broken down more. But it's not because they're different. It's just they're trading different markets. The, the elements of trading successfully are still highly similar. The only difference might be, Occasionally on the on a stock side, you might get people who almost bleed into a little bit on the you know to the investment uh, mm. side. Like, uh, uh, but you know that's only occasionally. It's not it's not the norm. So for the most part, there's there's not any real distinct difference. It's just they're trading different markets. But uh, and a lot of times people trade both. So. A lot of people in this book do trade uh, stocks and, and you, know, you, you know, sometimes so you do what they trade predominantly. Uh, you know, although I, maybe in this book, maybe it's more device, but I know in a lot of the other wizard books, there were a number of people who did trade both, both uh, with, you know, uh, large commitments in each area. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, the the last, last trade I wanted to ask you about in his methodology, because this, this one's definitely unique as well, uh, I forget his first name, but last name uh, Camillo, uh, the guy from Texas, Texas. And he, JJ, what this guy would do is he he would monitor social media activity and he built a huge team to search for or, or to like sift out certain words um, okay. that would, you know, he would just notice unusual social media activity first and he was wow. able to successfully uh, use this information to trade, but he would try and sell this information to hedge funds and they weren't having none of it. Uh, well, you know, just Jack, what, what were your thoughts around him and his process? Yeah, well, he was the most surprising in that um, 
he expanded my universe of what I thought trading could be. So yeah. before doing his book, you know, he, he, he was like a coin could be heads or tails. Um, you could even be a fun, you could even use fundamentals or technical or some combination of the two. But there was nothing other than that. I mean, you could you could mix the two or you can be one or the other. And each one within each sector of fundamental analysis or technical, you know, there were you know, unknown amount of approaches, but still they all they did everything fell into those categories, or so I thought. And so with Camillo, here's a guy who literally says, I didn't like fundamentals. He was like, I found the boring, I didn't want it to, I guess I could never be, I could never excel that way. There are too many guys who do the type of work, I don't want to do that. And he didn't, didn't technical didn't work for him and charts, and so he didn't use either one. Uh, but what did work for him is picking up on social trends early. And it didn't make a difference what the price is, didn't make a difference what the, what the stock, what the chart looked like. It didn't make a difference what the fundamentals were. He was trying to catch these trends early. Like he talks about, uh, I mean, there's tons of great examples in that chapter, mm -hmm. uh, but say something like the uh, iPhone. And he's out in Texas, some, right? And, but he speaks to people and, hey, you know, like catch funds and whatever, and about the, anybody, this new iPhone thing. And they're saying, oh, you know, it'll never go. You, you know, the, it's the, the receptor, because the first came out as was AT&T. And AT&T in New York City was horrendous. And so everybody hated everybody in New York, which meant the vast majority of the financial community hated the iPhone because of the reception. But he's out, this, he's out kind of in not middle America, but more typical America. And he goes to the first party and somebody has an iPhone and he sees everybody's kind of buzzing around it and you know, just everybody's crazy for it. So he kind of, he got it like nine months earlier than the street did because he saw how people reacted to it. So he's attuned to that type of stuff. Or, you know, uh, uh, PM, you know, restaurant chains like P.F. Chang or something like that, where, you know, New York, you know, hedge man, they'll never go to P.F. Chang ever in their life. But what he, sees, <laughs> what he sees here, people are lining up to go to a fast food restaurant. Yeah. And he kind of picks up on stuff like that. And so, you know, eventually, as you mentioned, he, uh, he kind of built a company to, to com that computerized these things and he uses, uh, and he, you know, he used like Twitter predominantly, but he would use social media to pick up on not just individual words, but he would have these combination of words that he would look for. And it would tell him, he would give him like early insight, you know? So there's, and there's tons of, tons of examples where he did that. And he's done enormously well at that. So it's kind of incredible. He invented his own kind of type of strategy. Yeah. The, uh, the guy, even even when he's talking about his early ages, the, the guy's just a hustler, just a real entrepreneur oh, yeah, 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 mindset. Yeah. So, you know, I yeah, can, can really appreciate that. And, you know, JJ, he, uh, you know, I have an affinity for Wendy's. He was able to pick <laughs> yes. up on the, on the bacon burger. Or oh, was he? Uh, pretzel bacon burger. I don't yeah, know. It was because, funny. Was this is, so, yeah, so that was the thing. So yeah. pretzel, pretzel cheeseburger. Yeah. So, <laughs> he, well, for one thing, he goes, he kind of does things, you know, like he went to, the local Wendy, you know, not Wendy's in his area, and he would speak the match, and they would tell him this thing is selling crazy. And then he would see on on Twitter that he would compare the volume of of the seasonal uh, promotional, uh, you know, uh, food compared to other fast food seasonal promotional, 
And it wasn't just that it was large, it was like much larger than anything else. So he thought it'd be enough to move the needle and skip away. Just from visiting local Wendy's and from, from you know, social media. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. And, and I loved how he like almost, like he was like Wall Street slow. Wall Street's slow on these things. And I'm like, what? Like, I've, I've never heard of like a retail person talk like that. I was like, but it makes a lot of sense because he's in tune to certain things. Like you said, like these guys will never go to certain places. They, these guys are living in their like <laughs> penthouses. They're not really tuned into like what the average American is doing. So right. yeah, I thought that was really neat. Um, yeah, just incredible. Like you said, just expanded like the horizon of what you think trading uh, would be and another thing with him though and I'm, I think really echoes through everybody is they're all disciplined you know even if he, he knows he's not always right he's like this is not like the, the the key to everything but he uses it in his process but he's he's not stubborn he's disciplined just like all these guys are even though they have different methodologies yeah so. he knows where he'll, you know he knows where he'll get out you know and it's uh, yeah. and he's looking for an event he's looking for something to like you know based on what he's seeing in social media he'll have an expectation for earnings. So um, once the earnings come out, he'll be out regardless because he's not looking for any, doesn't make a difference how much more it's gonna go or not gonna go. He was looking to get ahead of the crowd and once the news is out. Now, now you have situations where hedge funds in more recent years have gone to like credit card data to get mm -hmm. the jump on earnings, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because you could see maybe addictivity showing up in, in credit card data. But he, you know, he makes the point that that he's what he sees is before then, because it'll start. People will start talking about it before it show, before they start. It start showing up in credit card data. So you know, so he might actually now, as hedge funds are using that more, he might get out before earnings, just on because hedge funds are seeing it in hedge fund, in in the credit card data, and he'll use he'll use that to know when when the rest of the street knows what he what he thought he only knew. Yeah, right, right. I love it. No, it's awesome. Jack, out of all the interviews that you've done over the years, and this might be a tough question. If you don't want to answer it, that's fine. But is there is there like a trade or two or three that really just stood out to you? Like, man, like this guy's sharp. Like this is, is there anyone that really stands above most of the people that you've talked to? Well, it's hard to say, you know, stands above because I, you know, there have been so many brilliant people that I've, you know, interviewed over the years. Uh, so you want to, you know, say so. I mean, I mean, it could go on and on, like Covner and Marcus and Paul Tudor Jones and Ray Dalio and Stanley Druckenmiller, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, but if I kind of had to say, this is one person kind of most impressive, maybe would probably be Ed Thorpe, uh, because he has. I mean, you, if this was like if his life was fiction, you'd think it'd be made up because there are just so many firsts there. So. This, he's he the first one who figured out how to beat, you know, people thought it, like, it was impossible to beat, to, to beat Las Vegas. You know, you, you couldn't do that, the odds. But he kind of figured out in two ways. So one was in, he figured out like the in blackjack that if you could scale your betting mathematically. So, I mean, he figured out that if you could change the size of your bet to be bigger when the odds were better, you could take a losing edge and turn it into a positive edge. And so he wrote this book, which became a bestseller, Beat, beat, uh, beat the Dealer. Uh, he changed the way Vegas operated. They went to multiple decks, frequent shuffling, uh, uh, shuffling and so forth. But he actually figured out how to, how to, how to beat Vegas at their own game. 
uh, and educationally, he's this is a guy who was writing his thesis for physics. He came from, I should say, he came from like, he grew up in the depression. He came from a very poor background. Uh, his high school, you know, he went to a lousy high school. So he kind of taught himself physics and uh, he did well and he got like a super high grade, was able to get in to you know, one of the California universities. Uh, then he was, he was getting, he was going for a PhD in physics, was writing his thesis, decided he didn't know enough math took graduate math courses, got a PhD in math, never wrote his thesis in physics. So he's technically not a PhD in physics. Then he went on, so I say, this thing, then he cooperated with uh, one of the most famous scientists uh, of the 20th century, Claude Shannon, who's called the father of information theory. And the two of them developed the first wearable computer. So they figured out how to beat roulette, which sounds impossible, but the way they did it is through Newtonian physics they would actually uh, time the, the spin of the ball and predict which eighth of the wheel was most likely to turn up. And one person had to kind of time the time and the other person would place the bets and they had to have a wearable computer that to kind of, when they input, when they, when they press the thing that the, the ball uh, passed the rotor, uh, that, that set off the, 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 the program on the wearable computer to beep and then stop at a, at a do re mi sound, which was the octave that octet that where they would bet. So they developed a 40% edge on roulette. Um, but that's just on the, so the gambling side, that was that. And then he went on to finance. He um, developed, he really was the first market neutral hedge fund. He came up with the Black-Scholes theory or the mathematical equivalent years before, you know, Black-Scholes uh, uh, really? you know, came up with it themselves because you know, they published it eventually, but he was using it for years. Uh, he, was, he was first, I think, to use convertible arbitrage as a strategy. He was one of the, he may be the first to use statistical arbitrage. So on and on and on, and his performance was like crazy. His first fund, uh, 19 years, uh, three losing months, all less than 1%. And you know, I figured out the odds on that and it's, it's like absurd. I mean, it's like the most ridiculously low I actually had to come up with a analogy because the number is 10 to such a high exponent that you can't imagine it. But I worked out that it was the equivalent of, it was actually, his, his, his track record was less probable than picking uh, an atom in the whole mass of the earth and then wow. randomly picking a, the, another atom and it was the same atom. So that probability is higher than his track record. Probability, if the efficient market hypothesis was correct. So, of all the people, I'm saying just because of his brilliance and all the things he did, um, you know, he also came, he also knew Madoff was a fraud like 10, 10 years before Marco Polo wrote, wrote wrote the paper. So, just right. and he has his own book, by the way. Uh, so, I interviewed him on a long, my longest interview, not my longest, my longest chapter uh, was was on Thorpe, and he has a book called A Man. A Man for All Markets, which is worth reading, uh, which is even more detailed uh, story of his life. Definitely. I'm definitely checking that that out. That's, um, yeah, I, I see why you picked him. Uh, incredible guy. Wow. Extraordinary. And, and, and with all that, he doesn't have the ego. I mean, he, he talks to you like you're on his level, you know, and uh, he's not like some people have really succeeded and kind of talk down to you. And he's not, he's just a good, he's like, literally a good person. Um, so I also liked him as a person, which, yeah. which is not always the case. 
Right, right. That, that's amazing. And, and I'm sure, and a lot, I think a lot of people don't think of it this way. This is the way I look at it. I, I'm sure that actually helped contribute to his success, not having uh, much of an ego, because that can get a, a lot of the, you know, a way of a lot of people. I know there's for a few rare exceptions, but, you know, especially in markets or just gambling in general, um, not having an ego, I think is highly beneficial for sure. Yeah, so. For sure. Um, Jack, I guess last question I have for you. Uh, passion, passion for writing. Has that always been there for you? Uh, it was from the first book. I mean, I didn't know I was going to be a writer. Yeah. Um, but I discovered everybody has their own talent. My, my talent is not trading. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not my talent. I mean, I just, uh, I, I might make money, a bit of money on it, but not much. Uh, but my, what I think I am good at is, uh, is, is, you know, I think I'm okay as a writer. And uh, particularly in trying to take things that are complicated sometimes and write it in a way where it's, you know, the average person can get it, you know, without making it overly, you know, so uh, I think that's an ability I do have. Uh, so I like, you know, so I do like writing. There is some satisfaction if you do something and it turns out okay. Uh, and you always hope it's gonna be okay. You know, you think it is, but you never know for sure until you see the response. Yeah. Yeah. Well, really enjoying the, the new book. I'm almost through. It's uh, did not disappoint at all. You know, we've touched on some of the stories. So for all the listeners, go out there and get it. Um, we really appreciate you, Jack, you know, really dissecting these guys and what makes them successful. You obviously do a great job. You ask the right type of questions. Um, we're just, you know, really grateful. So, you know, that concludes today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed the show, please rate and review it for us. If you guys would like to learn market auction theory, market profile, trade futures, trade equities, and or options, come join JJ and I at microefutures.com. Jack, tell the people where they can find you um, and anything else you'd like them to know. Sure. Well, you know, the book's obviously available anywhere, you know, Amazon, et cetera. Um, there also I have, I'm associated with a company, um, partner in a company called fundseeder.com which is an analytical platform for traders. A number of the traders in this book came from, from that platform. I mean, the object of the platform is to identify undiscovered trading talent uh, and to lure traders, lure. <laughs> but but to, give <laughs> traders, to give traders a reason to, you know, to provide free analytics, basically. Uh, so, but our, you know, our interest is not to profit on that side, but rather to profit from connecting traders to investors through the investment arm of our company. And uh, so that's fundseeder.com. Uh, and jackschwager.com is my website. I don't do much of it, but you know you can find basically links to the books, the audios, uh, uh, some article, a number of articles I've written, Twitter feed, et cetera. Awesome. Do, do you do the, uh, the Audible yourself, the audio version? No, no, I, I hire somebody that's good. Okay. So <laughs> uh, actually I've only had a few books where I had control of the audio. So, um, it turns out my agent somehow got me to write back for the audio on uh, on New Market Wizard. So I had, so I went through this process of into through uh, you know Audible has an arm called ACX, and you could audition narrators, professional narrators. Mm. And I had like forty people after the first few days, and I had to cut it off because I had forty people. Almost all of them were good, you know, quite a number were exceptional. So I got it down to like ten, and from that I narrowed it down to four. And finally, I just, you know, I sent it to like 10 people who were involved in podcasts and other. So 
who do you think it is best out of these four? And the majority picked one person who I also, I liked all of them. So, so I went with him and he did a great job. And then I, uh, the new one, then the market, original market was this audio. The publisher, you know, you had the narrative and it wasn't very, I didn't think it was a very good narration. And I finally got them to let me pay for another narration. So the same narrator now does that. And then when I did this book, I, I said, I'm not giving up the audio rights. And so I, again, got the same narrator name as DJ Halti. Uh, he's, uh, you know, kind of started out as an actor. He does professional uh, narrations and stuff, and he's excellent. So uh, those three books uh, have the same narrator. And then there's, there's you know, uh, Hedgehog Marker was is a, is a good narrator, but not as, but a different one. And the middle book of Marker was is another narrator. Those were the publisher picks. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Yeah, I always thought my co-host here um, missed one of his his maybe in a past life he was a uh, a narrator, an audible man himself. With the amount of messages he gets from women from the podcast, it's incredible. Yeah. I get oh. none. I get. <laughs> You'll be in trouble here. I know. I know. No. Uh, I, his girlfriend <laughs> joking around. <laughs> uh, JJ, parting words. Oh, but well, thank you very much, Jack, for being with us. Really excited about the new book. Um, thank you for inspiring the old guys like me and inspiring the new young generation of traders. Um, we owe you a huge debt of gratitude, uh, showing us that, you know, uh, you know, more than just learning how to trade the, the whole, you know, giving us that hope that it's possible by showing other people who have done it. I think that's very important for people who are out there slugging it and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's nice to have a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And you've always provided that for the last, you know, 30 years. And we're very grateful. Thank you very much. And thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So for Jack Schwager, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of house street. You stops. <laughs> <laughs>